Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Talking About Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Olinger. We're called the Talking About Podcast after a man who once said that it, it, we are, we're talking about practice, not a game. And Sean, I don't know what the Sixers and Raptors did on that court last night, but it was, in fact, not a game, in my estimation. Became kind of a dance battle there towards the end. Um, <laughs> I, I liked the broadcast called it. It was like they were our, the the contestants on Family Feud, just, just oh, yeah. rooting <laughs> on rooting on their family members. Um, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun um, for a game that devolved into a lot of Stanley Johnson versus Mario Shayok and who would do less to hurt their team. Uh, it, yeah, I, I had to say I was pretty entertained. We're oh, I mean, I thought I might save this for later, but. I'll just go ahead and go for it now. Were were you root, were you rooting for the Raptors as hard as I was? I I definitely I, I get in this mood where I kind of become fine with either outcome, and it's like this ambivalence takes over me. So they the Sixers would hit a three, and my wife was watching the game with me, and she'd cheer. And I actually, I wasn't cheering. And she's like, oh, aren't you, did you not see what happened? I was like, yeah, I saw you hit a three. It's good. And she's like, well, why aren't you happy? And I said, well, it's actually bad for them to win this game. And I exactly. tried to explain the top 20 protection on the Oklahoma City pick. And I pulled up Tankathon on my laptop and I tried to show her and she's just like, well, if you're not even going to root for the Sixers to win, we're not going to watch. Like uh, I'm only in it if we're rooting for them. We, we wouldn't have watched a game for four straight years if that was the case. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of ulterior motives when it comes to Sixers basketball viewing habits. Um, but yeah, we will have games where we can full heartedly root for them again on Monday night when the playoffs start and we have a, uh, the matchup in stone against the Boston Celtics. So excited to talk about that with you. Yeah, I am too. And just one quick thing. So I, I too, like you was cheering so hard for the Raptors and Stanley Johnson to pull that off last night. My, my brother can attest. I audibly screamed not when Stanley Johnson hit that shot and even louder when Mike Muscala hit the three for the thunder later in the night, by far the best, like, Mike Muscala, Sixers double agent, we will love you for life. I have written too many draft pieces over the past six months projecting the Sixers to have a 21st to 24th like placed pick that I am so glad that was all saved by him. I'm going to feel really bad when Josh Harris blames the pandemic for why he has to sell the pick. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, trying to move on from that, um, I thought we should, before we get in, because we're going to spend most of this pod today talking about the Sixers, like previewing the Sixers series with the Celtics, as I'm sure all of our listeners out there really want to know, because that's basically what's left now. I mean, there's basically, it's guaranteed the Sixers and Rockets, if they do play their starters, they should not try at all. There's really no purpose left to that game, unless James Harden wants to try and like, up his scoring average for some weird reason. That's about it. So at at most it's gonna be maybe they play first half minutes and then yeah. they just empty the bench for the second half just because they want to like maintain the rhythm mm-hmm. and not have a four day layoff or whatever it would end up being mm-hmm. before they play a playoff game. But yeah, it's not gonna be 
much more than a handful of token minutes at the beginning for the the regular starters. Yeah, kind of like the Mavs did today with Phoenix. They they basically did that same strategy. But before we get dive into that, I just wanted us to talk about like the tone and like how we are dealing with how the Sixers played these last two weeks. Cut and I'll Sean, I'll let you start because I have my own thoughts on this. Yeah, there was some good and some bad. Obviously, the the biggest thing that occurred was Ben Simmons getting injured, and he's now out for the Mm -hmm. season. So, any any kind of like long shot title optimism that still remained dormant inside me, even despite a season's worth of evidence to the contrary, is kind of gone at this point. So in that sense, I'm very happy they're playing Boston and uh, Dan Volpone on our website wrote a good piece about that, how just playing Boston and potentially upsetting Boston would just feel good in and of itself. And everything else would kind of not, like if they then lost to Toronto in the second round, I'd say, oh, well, they beat Boston. That was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they beat Indiana, like who really cares? Um I mean, that'd be great to watch and see them win a series, but it wouldn't ultimately have significance for me down the road as, as a fan. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot that's been kind of evaporated for me from this bubble experience just with Simmons being out. But there were some good things. I mean, Embiid has looked dominant when he's been healthy and on the court. And just seeing him kind of reestablish himself as the guy who can be the best player on the court and take over a game in any particular moment is, is great to watch. And uh, Tobias Harris has been a terrific, consistent offensive force for them. And, you know, we joke about the contract and everything, but he's going to be on the team for a few more years. So just seeing him raise his game to, to another level and kind of be not only a great scorer and have that potential, but just, just bring it like, Hey, you're getting 20 points a night from Tobias Harris. That's something that they can build on going forward. So, um, I mean, Alec Burks has been great, but I, I don't really expect him to be back next year. I think he'll get a big deal and go somewhere mm-hmm. else. Um, so yeah, I think just Joel and Tobias have been the, the, the bright spots for me for things we can build on as a, as a team moving forward. The rest has been, you know, it's alternated between inconsistency and just poor play and the Simmons injury just kind of put a damper on everything. So, uh, I mean, that's aside from it being fun and unique that they're just playing in a bubble and everything is, I'm happy basketball is back in our lives. Those, those are the kind of the takeaways from the, the play itself for me. Well, I appreciate your general optimism, Sean. And I, I will say Embiid, cause that was something I wanted to bring up. So, his stats like kind of took a little bit of a dip after he got injured in the Portland game and then basically got just smacked across the wrist by Marc Gasol and decided like it's not worth it and, so- and stopped playing against the Raptors. In the four games that mattered, those first four games, Joel was averaging 30 points, 13 and a half rebounds, th- just under three and a half assists on 61.3% true shooting. And like this is up from – like we forget it's been such a long layoff. There was a lot of talk during the regular season about how much we had kind of like drifted towards Ben Simmons. Like you often publish the bubble bell ringer series, like, or not like, I guess bubble for now, but like the Sixers bell ringer, like articles where like readers can like vote on who 
like which Sixers player basically probably deserved, like had the best game, that kind of thing, or most meaningful game. And Ben Simmons was leading that throughout the season. And the reason is like we were all been kind of disappointed Joel dip his scoring, dropping down to 23 points. We're going to see him boost that back up was really encouraging. I mean, really the only bad stat he had is he was one for 11 from three of those four games. He was drawing like he only played three more minutes per game than usual in those four games, but his free throw attempts went from eight, like 8.6 free throw attempts per game all the way up to like 11.3, which is like a significant jump in just that short amount of time. Like that's, that's about a free throw and a half more per 36. So he was getting to the foul line a ton. Like Embiid was just flat out awesome. And I think it's really fascinating that for most of the season, the kind of, general talk amongst Sixers fans was that we were kind of becoming more Ben Simmons people as he had kind of like had the better season. He's, I mean, look at all the all NBA ballots by like national media that have been like publishing articles that, and they were all published before the bubble game started. Ben Simmons was consistently put on third team all NBA and Joel wasn't. And I find it interesting that kind of the discourse shifted to back to Ben Simmons is the problem per se, I mean, obviously put that in air quotes, like the problem, whereas Joel Embiid's the one who clearly has his stuff together. Yeah, it's, and I mean, uh, Joel talked about this on JJ Reddick's podcast, how he just hadn't been having as much fun this year. He didn't, he was kind of trying to find how he fit with, you know, Al coming on board and he just wasn't as comfortable in whatever role he was put in. So just seeing him get back out there and get more comfortable. And you mentioned the increase in his uh, trips to the free throw line. And he also did a much better job kind of recognizing double teams. And I thought his passing decision-making looked a lot better than it had in the past. So those were all, yeah, all tangible steps that we can uh, build on and, and look for him to continue to improve on going forward. And I, th- I think that's always going to be kind of a thing with, uh, between Ben and Joel and just having two guys that are both mm-hmm. so talented, there's, they're going to go through stretches where if one guy's having a down period or struggling a little bit, everyone will be like, Oh, well, why this it's the other guy's team, obviously. And I, I think that's just, as long as they're playing together, that's going to kind of swing back and forth just because they're, they're so close in talent that mm-hmm. it's, it's going to go either way, depending on who's kind of having the better month or season or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, we you mentioned like just how good Joel we've I mean we've been talking about how good Joel was playing this that first week of the bubble games. Like he was just more I mean it's we talk about it so much as like a Sixers fan base that it becomes a vanishing point almost that Embiid was engaged for those four games. You could tell what he really wanted to get the ball and try and score whenever he got it, which there were times like during the regular season like Embiid would get it and you just feel like he didn't really care. He if he did not get going early, it just he assumed, okay, I guess it's not my night, and he's comfortable finishing with, like, 12 points. And he didn't seem that way for those first few games, which is really encouraging. But, I mean, part of the reason we only got to see it for four games, so you said the Ben Simmons injury, which obviously is the most important thing. But I, I just really look back to that Pacers game right away because through the scrimmages, like, you, we thought the Sixers might have been setting a tone. They were playing really well in those scrimmages and that they could come out, engage, like, show everyone – a lot of people thought they could move up to the four or five slot that they were had a pretty easy schedule and that, you know, the Sixers have been talking all year. We're a team built for the playoffs. And now's the time where you show we are that team instead of just like, 
And then they came out so flat-footed against the Pacers. I understand TJ Warren shot out of his mind, but they did not do anything to stop that. Really, no one besides Embiid or Harris had an even good game. From there on out, they managed to survive the Spurs game so they could at least like not completely fall apart, but then they hit that stretch of games that didn't matter, the five games against teams with below 500 records. They basically said, okay, the Pacers are have won their like first three games. So we're just punting on all of this. We're just going to rest and wait till the playoffs start. Like this is just another case where the Sixers had a chance to go out there and really prove something to people. And I think they just kind of rolled over basically after they got hit in the mouth once. I, yeah, I remember when the scrimmages were going on and I think they had, I forget who, which scrimmage opponent it was, but they were just playing out of their minds in the first half. They were up 20 points or something. And every, not only every Sixers writer on Twitter, but every national NBA writer was like, oh my God, the Sixers. And it was just... I think that was the Grizzlies scrimmage because they were up like 30. Yeah, yeah, it was Memphis. You're right. And everyone was just like, oh, it's the bubble. There was such a long layoff. Who really knows what's going to happen? It could be very chaotic. And the Sixers were playing well. And it's like, oh, yeah, the Sixers have a lot of talent. Like, they are as talented as pretty much any team in the league. Why couldn't it be them that seizes this opportunity in this unique moment in in NBA history and kind of, uh, you, you know, comes out of – nowhere nowhere being the sixth seed or whatever and you know this could be their year and then yeah the seeding game started and any kind of hope that had been built up by that uh that performance in the scrimmages it just evaporated very quickly every tj warren shot kind of punctured that that yeah. bubble a little more and yeah it was it was definitely disappointing and very underwhelming how they performed in the seeding games as a whole and uh ironically i thought the first half against Toronto is probably as, as good as they looked as, they as did a team. Good at yeah. And just, it, it says so much when there are clearly some teams, like I'm pretty sure I know the Lakers and Bucks do not have very good records, like overall in their bub- bubble games. And I don't think the Clippers is that good, but that, there's a reason why that is because those teams are basically locked into their seeds already, already knew how good they were. and had nothing left to prove or really earn. And the Sixers basically acted like one of them. I understand the Simmons injury complicated things, but I I think you know what I'm saying, Sean, that the Sixers, despite not being at that record, not having those, that kind of net rate, not proving that they are one of those teams kind of assumes they are basically decided that, you know what, who cares about these games? Just move on. It just kind of bothers me just how easily they fold sometimes, but it's yeah, an extension of how they looked all season where it is. They just kind of assumed they were going to step on the court and beat teams. And then they were very inconsistent. And sometimes they played down to competition and didn't perform well at all on a given night. And then everyone just kind of adopted the, Oh, they were built for the playoffs. And then we were just all waiting for them to suddenly they, the rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast had a party. They tight were, they were going to have a party before COVID, but they called it Flip the Switch. And they made t-shirts called Flip the, uh, with Flip the Switch <laughs> on it. So everyone just kind of thought, oh, well, that's what they're going to do. They're going to flip the switch. And they have never – the switch hasn't been flipped. It, it never has. And they just – There are very few teams that can do that. And usually it's teams that have already won, like – or a single player that has already won. Like LeBron could 
quote unquote flip the switch. The Warriors after that first title could be, they basically for the back to back championships, like they were already playing pretty well in the regular season. Then they went up like four levels in the playoffs. Like you have, and like the Sixers, we, we both believe they are super talented. They are really good still. Like as much as we complain about them, this is still an above average basketball team that not a lot of, a lot of other fan bases would probably like to at least have these kinds of players, but there's no proof that this is a special team that can just do that kind of thing. The closest we ever got to it was last year against the Raptors, like game three, where they, against a really good, an obviously really good Raptors team, they just like basically bullied them around the court for the 48 minutes. And th- that was like when people were thinking the Raptors just looked completely shook by how long and tall the Sixers were. And but that you, they didn't keep that up. They basically let that slip through their hands too. And I, I mean, we're going off on a bit of a tangent here, but it's just, it feels like as much as it, like we, you hear it from so many people who talk about the Sixers, it's like nothing has changed that much at the end. This is still, at the end of the day, this is still a very frustrating team for the same reasons. There's no sign that they're a special team. I, I, they're, they're a, you know, a six seed. That's kind of, they landed, I think where they deserved it. They deserve to land. They're a playoff team that if Simmons was healthy, they'd probably be a very slight underdog to Boston, but, and now they're a team that has maybe a puncher's chance and mm-hmm. they'll probably lose youth, not in the first round than the second round. And that's just kind of what they are. And any, anything else is, I don't, there's no evidence to support any further goals or anything for this team at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, we can, like, I did want, I did have a few positive takeaways, although, I mean, the main positive takeaway was just the play of Embiid and Tobias Harris. But obviously, to me, by far the best, like, the biggest positive of this whole experience is keeping that OKC pick. Like, they really just – this is a draft laden with, like, as as much as trouble as they're – like, this draft isn't very good at the top. There's not a ton of high-end talent, and it's going to be really hit or miss. There are a lot of guards and guards who can, like, shoot off the dribble in some sense. So – I'm really glad the Sixers kept that pick. I was ecstatic when Mike Muscala hit that shot. Can always count on Moose to come up big for Philadelphia. <laughs> um, another, I mean, another big positive, big, put a lot of stock up in the Sixers is their vlogging skills. I mean, not j- just Matisse. Did you see the vlog Furkan Korkmaz put out today? I, I haven't watched it. I know, I know people yeah. are, are very supportive so, of it. It was just a two-minute video. It was basically just him. I think Al Horford walks by at one point. He basically just walks around with music, like showing us everything, like talks about like, oh, there's the pool there. Then goes down to the game room and shows some games. And he's like a little sad because no one else is in the game room. So he says, okay, guys, I'll just play games against myself. And like sits down to play. It was like, it was only like two minutes long. At least what I, I don't know if it was longer. I saw it on Twitter today, but... I mean, it was still like in the same. Obviously, not as not going to gain as much notoriety as Matisse Thibel's vlog has, but equally as lovable and like from our. I, I mean, I do. Our young guys are very fun. They are. Um, he needs to find whole Howell Neto, and uh, who's apparently the best Monopoly player on the team, which which we learned last night. <laughs> oh, I I, I want to talk about this. Is like I hadn't planned this, but I've tweeted it out a few times. Howell Neto, like, 
if I ever like get around to writing something about like irrational confidence all stars throughout the league, Howell Neto is a hundred percent like a starter. He is so like unwavering in his beliefs that he can take someone off the dribble, that he can make these like step back one foot floaters from like 17 feet and he'll just keep doing he shot so many times in that Phoenix game. And I like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, he is so confident for a guy who does not get that much play. No, yeah, you're right. Um, I think, yeah, I think that comes from when you're an international player and you kind of play professionally as a teenager. I think you just have to have that confidence in yourself to be able to, as a, t- literally a teenager, like, you know, these guys are 16, 17 years old a lot of, in a lot of cases, and they're playing against 30-year-old men you just have to have that confidence that you can do whatever you can on a basketball court and not to back down from anybody. And I think that just kind of translates Mm -hmm. to when he now is in the NBA and he's, you know, an older veteran, but yeah, you don't lose that kind of irrational confidence. So uh, um, not, not to overgeneralize, but I I do, I kind of see that with a lot of international players. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I wish there was at least a, mo- a little more unselfishness in our other international player who, again, made a lo- lovable vlog today, but how did Furkan Korkmaz not find Kylo Quinn under the basket to give him that triple-double? Yeah, it, I mean... It was right there! Yeah, it's... And uh, Derek Bodner of The Athletic wrote a nice little section about about that whole situation in his post-game article. Uh, yeah, it, it was pretty glaring, and you can't think Kyle's ever going to have another chance at a triple double in his career. So that was, that was it. That was his shot. And uh, yeah, shooters, shooters are going to shoot. I mean, that's just who Furkan is. And now He's, it's, now no one's even going to remember it. Cause in the Grizzlies game today, John Morant and Jonas Valanciunas both got triple doubles. So that's all they're going to talk about when Kyle Quinn as like the 13th man on the team. I don't know if it's that low, but very, He's buried deep on the roster. To come out and get a triple-double would have been awesome. But, oh, I mean, they're a bigger Sixers problem. So, well, well, we have one last thing before we move on to our Celtics preview, which is going to be a recurring segment on the show. After we were positing last week, just the Sixers fans, like fans as a whole, lead the league in complaining about players they should have had, that players that should be on the Sixers but weren't for one reason or another. So welcome to the player the Sixers should have had complaint corner, where each week we'll at least pick one guy each to talk about. And Sean, I'll let you get it started. Sure. So just watching the Phoenix game, I miss Stario Sharch so much. And from a basketball standpoint, I understood why he was traded away. It, It was a, I mean, Covington was obviously the bigger piece of the deal. And you can kind of argue that moving Covington was a mistake. Realistically, there's not a spot for Dario in the starting lineup. So he would have been a bench player. What would you pay him on his next contract to be a bench player for this Sixers roster? They they obviously don't have cap space now. In the alternate universe where they had not made that trade and kept Dario, would they have cap space? I don't know. Um, I guess they would retain his rights so they could go over to cap to keep him. So... Would they be willing to pay the tax to keep Dario? I don't know. But just from a personal standpoint, this was a guy who gave up millions and millions of dollars to come over earlier than people expected him to because he said he's a man of his word and he said he was going to come over when he did, so he did. You have to love that. 
he, to a man, every teammate he's had in Philadelphia just had nothing but glowing things to say about him. He was consummate teammate. Everybody loved him. He, he could make anyone laugh. And he gave us all every night on the court. Um, is he a perfect fit with the rest of the roster? No. Um, but he's a 35% career three-point shooter. That's also right around what he shot this year in Phoenix. Um, so he can space the four pretty well. And he does all those little things. He makes those hustle plays. He can pull out those funky post moves on people when he gets a little bit of a mismatch. And he was just beloved here. It it feels wrong that he was only in Philadelphia for fewer than three seasons. Mm-hmm. And it's not the most rational, like X's and O's basketball. We should have kept this guy that we'll cover in this segment. But emotionally, I think it might be number one for me. No, I definitely feel that. I mean, I've written two pieces about Dario Saric in the past, like, six months, and one of them was literally titled, I Miss Dario Saric. So, just, like, I, I completely get, for, get it from that standpoint. When I when you said the Phoenix Suns, I thought you were going to mention Mikhail Bridges. And just since he was not actually the one I picked, I just want to mention this quickly. Did you see the other night when Mikhail Bridges was, tr- like, this last day he was trending on Twitter? Because yeah. – Basically, a Phoenix Suns fan just, like, and just everyone started commenting that back. And it got so big, there were, like, thousands and thousands of tweets. And he was, like, in the top five trending. I, I definitely tweeted it out one time because I was – I mean, I'm a, I've been all in on the Suns, like, this past two weeks. But, I mean, I just find it hilarious that basically ba- basketball Twitter nerds decided, let's get Mikhail Bridges trending, and they were able to do it. Yeah, I did see that. It was pretty funny. Um uh, yeah, we're, we're we'll get to we'll get to bridges. There's if this is going to be a recurring segment, yeah. he he will come up again at some point. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But mine for today was like a last second addition because I was watching the Bucks Grizzlies game and I re- I remembered because the announcer brought it up that Sterling Brown of the Milwaukee Bucks was selected with the 46 pick by the Philadelphia 76ers in the 2017 draft and was traded for cash considerations. Now, Sterling Brown, like, obviously isn't a great player, but, like, he's gotten run with a good team in the Bucks. Like, he's a legitimate, like, player. He's played over 50 games in each of his three seasons. He's averaged around 15 to 16 minutes a game. He's, like, an okay shooter. I think he was um, 81st percentile on, like, spot-up, 64th percentile on catch-and-shoots, like, the season like and obviously on pretty low volume because again only 15 minutes per game in like 50 something games so take it that what you will but I just feel like it's another time it's one of those ones where it's like it's not as bad as trading TJ Warren for cash considerations or Jordan Bell for cash considerations all those years ago but it's still one of those ones where it's like that guy actually like can contribute and they gave him up for nothing not to mention that they also could have taken a guy like Monte Morris who was picked after him. And Monte Morris is one of the better backup point guards in the league over at Denver. And Or Edmund Sumner for the Pacers actually gives them some pretty good defense off the bench. Like, there were pieces there. And it's just, like, remembering that there's this guy in Sterling Brown who is not useless. Is not He's not an unjust Pasichniks. And yet they just gave him away for – practically nothing nothing that affects the fans and cash considerations on the other hand though where would this team be this season without cash considerations would they even have made the playoffs no (laughs) 
<laughs> um, but that's probably enough speculating about guys we don't don't why did I say don't guys we want the Sixers to have we need to focus on what is in the present what is in the immediate future and that would be the Boston Celtics it is time to preview the series uh Sean what are your initial thoughts my initial thoughts are I really wish Ben Simmons was playing because he is the ideal guy to go up against Jason Tatum just <laughs> very few players in the NBA that have the size and strength requirements to to match up with the big wings on Boston and just not having been for what would have been a really epic series in my opinion is a is a huge bummer um aside from just what it does for the Sixers as a potential title contender or whatever else you wanted to think when they were full strength just I would have really liked to see the Sixers and the Celtics go toe-to-toe, everyone healthy for seven games. That would have been a lot of fun. Um, but otherwise, I think the the most interesting thing, if you're the Sixers, is how much can Joel Embiid do? Mm-hmm. If they're going to have success, it's going to have to be through him dominating the Daniel Tice uh, and Enos Cantor front court center rotation that Boston has. And he's going to have to come out and be like a 30 and 15 guy every night. And if he, if he doesn't, if he struggles and he has a night where, you know, he has one of his six for 17 type games and he's settling for too many jumpers and he ends up with, you know, 16 points with, you know, bad percentages and a lot of turnovers, then it's going to be an early series or an early exit for them in the series. Um, Otherwise, I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, is Matisse Seibel ready for the play, like the big stage of the playoffs? He's going to have to, I, he started against Toronto and Brett said he'd been, he's been looking at different things. So Matisse could be an option to start. Um, if, if not game one at, he could try him at some point as a starter in the series. Uh, I think uh, him against Jalen Brown is a really interesting matchup. Just, mm-hmm. uh, Brown's not quite as stocky as Tatum. And, you know, that's the one kind of area of Tybalt's defensive game where he's he's still pretty young and he hasn't really maybe filled out as much as he will a couple of years down the road. So just a little more slender guy like Brown, I think would be a really interesting matchup for Matisse. Um, and then I just hope Josh Richardson gets out of whatever funk he's been in defensively in the bubble because they're probably going to start with him on Kemba Walker. And we'll see that, you know, whether he can shut him down like he and Matisse did in the season opener, or whether mm-hmm. if Kemba goes off and has, you know, a game where he hits five, six threes and gets 25 to 30 points, if he's scoring like that and they they have the J team and everybody else that are having their normal games, I don't see how the Sixers are going to win that game. So it's it's going to be uh, everybody else is going to have to step up without Ben in there, and we're going to need a lot of Josh. Uh, doing what we've seen in the past from him, but we we haven't really seen in the bubble. And uh, we're going to see uh, if Matisse is ready for the big stage. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of interesting things to, to continue to watch in this playoff series, even though six, this Philadelphia is a significant underdog now with Ben's, Ben's injury. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And it just the Boston-Philadelphia rivalry just adds another level to this. That should be really fun. Uh, so I have a crap ton of notes 
like, because I went back today and watched the Sixers lost to the Celtics in February to try and see what see what the Sixers were doing wrong or the Celtics were doing right that kind of gave them their only win over Philadelphia this season. Just quickly, I when you said like putting Josh Richardson on Kemba, I I would really want them to put Matisse Thibault on Kemba at all times because I think he really bothers him. He's great against smaller guards, and in watching this the game today, back in the series, like Al Horford in drop coverage against Brown and Tatum attacking the rim, like, could do nothing. They got to the rim so easily. They were, he would start backpedaling, but he wasn't – they were so fast and strong. He ended up, like – there were four different times he just got out of the way of Jalen Brown as he went to the rim. Like, he couldn't do anything of that. So, I actually would be interested – I don't think Brett Brown's going to do this, obviously, but I would be very interested in if they try and just make Al, like, start on the bench, put Matisse in and put him on Kemba duty, and then – because they, they're going to need some wings to match up with the Celtics. And, like, if you put the starting lineup then of Matisse, Jay Rich, Tobias Harris, Shake Milton, and, I mean, obviously probably the problem there is who does Shake Milton guard. And, I, I mean, I guess you maybe stick him on Gordon Hayward and see how he does. Probably put Richardson on Jalen Brown, Tobias Harris, and Jason Tatum. And that's also a problem is that in watching that game, Tobias Harris was not very – he was not quick enough to keep up with Tatum at all the few times he got switched onto him. and. Mm-hmm. Brown, even Brown was like a little too much for him. They, so I, I, I think like the Sixers are so overmatched at every position now with a team like the Celtics, except for center where they obviously have a big advantage. Although I'm a, I'm a big Daniel Tice fan in general. I think he does a lot of stuff that's really good for them. So they, you're right that Embiid is going to, it has to be not just a good Embiid series. Like it has to be the peak of Embiid's career thus far. He needs to be like the guy if they're going to do this. And I understand the fit issues of Simmons, but they really needed him as someone just to throw at Tatum and Brown because they have basically nothing else. I don't know who else on this team could do. I Like I already said, I'm really concerned about like how Horford matches up with them, especially they're going to attack him in drop coverage. And yeah, yeah. Like, do you would you actually be interested in like the Sixers trying to start Matisse on Kemba just because he might it might shift those matchups a little bit better for them? I basically agree with your assessment. It's not going to happen just because Al's a vet and Boston's his former team, and without Ben, they can credibly start Al and Joel together with three guys who can shoot the ball and that doesn't have the spacing issues that it did before, but he, yeah, this particular Boston team and their starting group is there's nowhere to put Al. It's they got Kemba, they got the three wings and they have the center. So you have to stick Joel in the center and yeah, there's nowhere, nowhere for Al to guard in, in that starting lineup. Um, and, and it's not like against Toronto where yes, Yakum is a lot quicker than Al, but just because he's not a guy that's going to jack up a lot of threes, especially like above the break threes or, or anything like that. Al can like hold his own against Siakam. It's, it's not something that really hurts them too much. Um, but yeah, any of Tatum Brown or Hayward is they're willing shooters. So if Al hangs back at all, they're just going to fire away. And then if he tries to press them out to the line, he, they're just going to blow past him. Um, no, yeah. And like, even with like the Raptors, I think in that kind of series you could put like you do what they did last year, put Embiid on Siakam for like yeah, exactly, yeah, in a, in, a, in, 
And I think Horford could handle Gasol. Right. Yeah, that's what they. Yeah, that's what they did in the uh, playoff series with Tobias on Gasol. So yeah. yeah, that would be even better with Al there. Um, but yeah, just watching the Toronto game, most re- the most recent game, Al did a pretty good job on Siakam when he was on him. So that that just came to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. They would they would change around those matchups in a, in a seven game series for sure. Um, but yeah, it's so it's it's not something that's going to be a something we're they're worried about a lot just because Al and Joel are only going to play limited time together. They're he, he's still going to serve as the primary backup for when Embiid sits at the center position. Um, so yeah, it's not going to be the reason they win or lose the series is because of the eight minutes a game that Al has to guard one of the wings. But yeah, it's definitely something that's going to hurt them. I mean, I would never say after last year in the Greg Monroe <laughs> experience, I would never say, oh, it's only eight minutes ever yes. again. Just you, because. And obviously Horford is better than Greg Monroe. It's just, I really feel like it's going to get to the point again where they can hardly ever stand to take him beat off the court. Cause I, I just feel like they're going to get killed in those minutes whenever he comes off. I, I don't have enough faith in like the rest of the roster. And like even the starting lineup, now obviously very small sample size, 118 possessions, assuming that the starting lineup is just put Allen for Ben, and then you have Shake, Richardson, Harris, and Embiid. Because we, we're assuming he wouldn't like make an alteration that, at least not at first. In 118 possessions together, that lineup's only plus 0.8 per 100. So, like, okay, but nothing great. And I, I just, that's, I mean, I don't want to sound too pessimistic like I usually am, but. I, and as much as everyone wants to hammer at home, oh, the Celtics do not have the size to match up with the Sixers. Like, Embiid has to be just like that game in December that they won where he had 38. He basically has to be that every, at least four times out of seven, which is really a lot to ask for if they want to really do this. You're right. If If the Sixers are to win this series, it's going to be because Joel Embiid has the type of performance where people say, Oh yeah, this was a guy people wanted to put into an MVP conversation at at certain points in his career. Mm-hmm. It's going to be take him, you know, having games we've seen against you know the Lakers in the past where he has forty and twenty, and he just there's every time down the floor he's either drawing fouls or he's reading a double team and kicking out to an open guy for three, and that's just the game plan, and that's what they revolved the team around you said, and, you said kicking out for threes off, i'm sorry to interrupt you but off doubles because i did want to mention this i don't know how how much of a like sample size there is of this but in that game i was watching today between the sixers and celtics like Embiid in the bubble was like excelling off of passing when they doubled him with a guy from the weak side so someone else would cut basically or stand outside for three and he could skip it the celtics would double where they would have someone come off the strong side, one pass away, like the guy who usually just entered the pass to Embiid. They would have him double usually. And they were like, because they were confident that the Sixers are too hesitant to shoot or not good enough at shooting, that they, it's not going to hurt them if Embiid just kicks it right back out. It, w- it would hurt them less than a cut or a skip pass to a corner three. They, so they would rather surrender that, like the easy like pass right there. So, I mean, I don't necessarily know how the Sixers are going to deal with it, except like, especially if it's someone like Tobias Harris or Shake Milton, that if you enter the ball to Embiid in the post, they, your man immediately goes to double and you get the ball right back. You should be ready to shoot because you need to make them pay if they're going to do that. 
Absolutely. And it's going to be up to those guys to, you know, fire away at will. And they're just going to have to hope we don't see a two for 13 game like we saw from Tobias in, in last year's playoff series. Um, and yeah, it's hopefully that Jake being a little more confident and in the starting group now and a little more experience under his belt, he's, we've seen in, in the bubble, he's not a guy that's shy. He stepped up and took the game winning shot against San Antonio. He, he, he he's definitely one of those irrational confidence guys in a sense. And like actually, actually I would, cause I would say like, he'll take those shots and like in the, he had, when he got really hot in those games way back in March when everyone was injured and he was basically the best player on the team, he was looked really confident, but I've, kind of thought he's been a little too passive and like for most of these games in the bubble where he like I wanted to see him shoot more off the dribble to try and be the Alec Burks like creator that he I think he can be especially in like against a team like the Celtics it's gonna he you're gonna have to be like confident shooting those because they're either gonna give you those open ones and if they put someone like Marcus Smart on him and they set ball screens which he might like like Marcus Smart is the best player at maybe the best guard in the NBA at staying attached to someone while going over a ball screen. So, I mean, good luck with that. But I, 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 I want Shake to be like – like, I think he's confident in the sense that he thinks he can make these shots, but I want, like, the frequency of how often he takes those, like, big shots or just general tough shots that we need in this offense. I, I want to see that more from him. He's – yeah, it's, it's an interesting to bring up smarts because something that really – bothered me about Shake's game in the bubble it was it seems like he got flustered a lot in the backcourt mm-hmm. and he definitely turned the ball over a few times in really ugly fashion so yeah just smart hounding him for 90 plus feet that's scary it, it's something that I think could really cause some problems um, I think a lot of his hesitancy if you want to call it that was Brett kind of getting into him like hey you have to be the point guard and I want you to create for others so maybe that was just a little more in his head. Um, so he was just trying to like overcompensate and be overly passive in, in distributing and finding others on the court. Um, I don't think if it's the playoffs and he gets the ball on a kick out for three, he's, he's a guy that's going to be hesitant to shoot that. So mm-hmm. it's basically what my point was. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's obviously the the other guys are going to have to step up and they're going to have to be to be willing to shoot and they're going to have to hit their fair share if the Sixers are going to you know stay competitive in these games because um, if Embiid scores thirty and Tobias has twenty there's they're still going to need other guys to step up and get the, the remainder of those points so mm-hmm. I mean and they don't have too many options I mean Alec Burks will maybe come in and he's been playing great and he has twenty points in the last three games but I'm you don't I worry about how Alec Burks might be like he is a I couldn't believe he threw those two skip passes because he's one of the worst passers I've seen in a while like he miss he does not pass very well at all and I feel like like Alec Burks is nice and I just love the shot creation too but I, I think there's a reason like like he's been bounced around the league quite a lot for a younger guy because just I don't know if I'm putting that in the right terms. Like, I, I think you really need him to be making all those shots for him to provide any value. Sure. He's definitely a microwave scorer more than he is like a starting point guard type. Um, but I, I think he's a guy that's, you know, he has bounced around, but I think he's made steady improvements in his game. And sometimes it just takes guys a few years to kind of find their role. And maybe his 
come off the bench and just, you know, light it up and kind of lead these second units who don't have a lot of other options offensively. That's just his going to be his role in the NBA. And maybe he's just found that now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, I think Boston is going to be a tough matchup because again, they can just stick smart on him, you know, with those guys both coming in off the bench and they, Boston obviously has a lot of wings uh, that will be able to stay with him. And then when he tries those kind of slithering scoop shots around the rim, they're long enough. They could get a piece of those. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough matchup for him, but uh, yeah, it's the Sixers aren't going to have a lot of places they can turn for, for scoring outside of, you know, Joel and Tobias. So we'll see who steps up and, uh, it's it's going to be interesting to watch to see uh, how these these young guys um, perform without Ben kind of there to assume so much of the responsibility. Like it's it's going to be a lot of Joel and a lot of Tobias and Josh. Um, but yeah, other guys are going to have to you know do their part as well. So we'll see how that shakes out. Now, Sean, I'm going to pull a Daniel special here and basically throw a bunch of stats I dug up at you and see what your reaction is to them, maybe even have you guess them before I give them to you. So I I really like this one. So I'm going to start with it. This is from pbpstats.com. So where do you think the Sixers and Celtics rank in points off of timeouts per 100? So I, the Sixers have historically under Brett Brown been really good in that area. He draws up good plays and I know Brad Stevens has the reputation of being excellent in that area. Um, I don't know. I'll say Boston's third, the Sixers are fifth. So now I, the PVP stats site, while having some great stats can be very complicated. So I apologize massively if I did get this wrong, but I'm pretty sure I filtered it the right way. Cause what I had was the Celtics were third at 117 points per 100 the Sixers were 27th at 97 points per 100. Yikes. Well, I, I nailed Boston exactly, so yeah, that, for that. Kudos to that. that. But, I mean, like, it's specifically, like, I mean, I, I made the I made jokes. I've made jokes before about Brett looking at Brad Stevens out of timeout plays. I mean, the famous one of, I think it was, was it game three where he drew up the one for, what was the play, what was the game where he drew up the play for Al Horford? where he basically pinned Robert Covington for an easy layup. Yeah, and there was definitely a push-off that they didn't call. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that certainly has haunted us in a previous playoff series. So, yeah, if, if the Sixers are, de- are are up one with four seconds left and Boston has a sideline out of bounds, will there be some PTSD flashbacks to that? Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, but, I mean, it's... Uh, I don't think that's going to be the this determining factor in anything. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think it's going to come down to if if we're just talking about the coaches, it's going to be, hey, is Brett willing to switch Al out of the starting lineup or make this matchup change and put Matisse on somebody else that he sees he's performing better against defensively and kind of use him to shut somebody down? I, there's going to be other ways that the the coaching matchup comes into play mm-hmm. so here's some other ones uh this is just an interesting one both philly and boston rank like in the same they have the same rankings in transition offense as they do half court offense and trans 
position defense, they do half-court defense, cause, which means overall they're the same offense and defense rankings, like, overall. I mean, it's I don't know if that sounded weird. I said it. And basically the Celtics are third in transition offense and, tra- and half-court offense, fourth in transition defense and half-court defense. Sixers are 12th in transition offense and half-court offense, seventh in transition defense and half-court defense, which – I mean, I just found that as a little quirk. And, like, again, not great that the Celtics rate better than the Sixers in both of those, but those are generally just numbers, like, you can get around. But this is one I thought that was kind of interesting because you would think the size advantage is a huge thing for the Sixers in the series. The Sixers have are 22nd in points per possession off offensive rebounds, and the Celtics are 11th in points allowed off of offensive rebounds. The Sixers do get a lot of offensive rebounds and then miss immediately, so that that doesn't really shock me too much. That could, that, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. yeah, they're very good at crashing the glass and not great at capitalizing on those extra possessions. So yeah, that, that's not super surprising to me. What, what percentile do you think Jason Tatum is at in guarded catch and shoot jumpers? According to NBA Twitter or reality? Just. <laughs> Just, uh, just one. <laughs> I, I have it. I have it written down. This is from Synergy. Uh, catch and shoot. Guarded uh, catch and shoot. Guarded catch and shoot. I'm gonna say he's 85th percentile. 95th. Oh, very good. And he, he has, he like a lot of guys apparently. As I've scrolled through Synergy, like he has that Josh Richardson thing where 34th percentile unguarded, 95th percentile guarded catch and shoot. So. I I don't know if the Sixers like maybe just leave Jason Tatum open like question mark <laughs> like I don't know but um <laughs> no it would be a very interesting strategy it would certainly get a lot of media attention if they decided to go with that right yeah I think I can, that kind of speaks more to the fact that he's willing and able to make those tough shots when the shot clock's winding down or whatever else and you just need to pull something out just basically on your own and yeah the percentile thing speaks to like how well he performs relative to everyone else not points per possession so right yeah i I just thought it was i just always think it's funny when like how there's such a big gap like that but yeah here's an here's one that's like very specific because i again said daniel tice i'm a big i'm a general fan of the way he plays and watching that Sixers celtics game earlier today like Embiid is not going to come out again on the paint against him. He's going to drop back. He, even though Tice will shoot threes, he shot 33% from on the season. Tice shot 33%. And I think Embiid will definitely lay back, especially because Tice got him sometimes like a pump fake and go. Cause he has a little, he's like small enough that he can kind of drive when needed. But I will point out that Daniel Tice in the bubble games has shot 47% from three which obviously, again, small sample size, but it's like not on terribly low volume. He's been able to shoot like that. And if he starts hitting threes from B not coming out, then the Sixers are in a lot of trouble. Yeah, if if we start worrying about Daniel Tice on offense, then all bets are off. And this, this, the Sixers are, are going to be uh, fishing in, in Lake Disney pretty quickly. Well, he does that thing like, where he'll he ball screens, Tatum will then snake the pick and roll so he gets someone on his back, and then Tice always he does the fake post up rescreen where he just pivots, basically completely 
moves like drives the other center out of the like picture and then Tatum basically gets a free run to the rim and he does it so much like I I can't tell you how many times he's done it this season and I mean fortunately I think it doesn't work great against Embiid just Embiid's so big but I could definitely see like in the non-Embiid minutes like them just killing the Sixers with Tatum Tice pick and rolls over and over again He's he's a very solid player. Um, I think he's kind of perfect for what they do with mm-hmm. the five out offense they want to run, and a lot of that is yeah that pick and roll action you're talking about. Um, but yeah, he's again he's easily the fifth option on offense for them. So if if it reaches the point where it's it's Daniel Tice that's that's hurting them, um, it's it's kind of a, a fait accompli for the for the Sixers. They're they're going to be done. Um, they they have to hope that he's a non-factor on offense because they have enough other guys they need to worry about. Mm-hmm. So last thing here, Sean, what is your prediction for this series? And you can give like a very brief explanation because we already talked a lot about them. Yeah, I mean, we 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 discussed everything. Uh, I'm going to say Boston in seven. It's I think and there's going to be one to two games that Embiid wins by himself and there will be a game where the Sixers just shoot out of their minds. Like Josh will hit four threes and Tobias will have a good game. And, you know, Furkan will hit like he'll have a game like he did yesterday where he shot five for nine from three and everything just seems charmed for them. Um, So there's always one of those games for each team, typically in a playoff series. And then I think Joel can, can win a couple game, one or two games by himself. So, um, but I, I just think without Ben, Boston's too deep and they have too much top-end talent for the Sixers with the the limited options that they have now to, to guard all the guys that Boston has. Um, I, I, I can't see Philadelphia coming away with a series win here. So I will uh, I'll say it's an entertaining seven-game series that uh, Boston advances, unfortunately. I'm going to say that it'll be Celtics in six. And I, I will admit I was thinking about Celtics in five. And here's my reasoning for that. I really don't think – if the Sixers want any chance, they cannot be down 2-1 or go down that – that like go down early in the series because this is definitely a team with how the season has gone where it could be like last year's Celtics where after Milwaukee kind of hit them pretty hard in that game three, they basically just completely folded – and I could see, like, say the Sixers play really hard in the first three games, but, like, lose two games, and it's just, like, they, I could see their, like, basically spirit getting broken in a way and just basically tossing in, you know, one, two, three, Cancun, like, just giving up on this season. I mean, I don't – I hope that doesn't happen. I just – with how this team has been all year, I could see them basically, if they get hit early in the series, kind of going down. One thing that I think is the Sixers might need, like if they want a chance in this, is for the Celtics. Just they need like those guys who have shot really well all year. The the five the four wings plus Kemba of like so one of one or two of Kemba Hayward, Smart Brown and Tatum to shoot poorly and just not be able to score much in the series. Because if there's one thing I think the Sixers could expose for the Celtics, the Celtics depth is really shaky because they have those top six. And then the guys have been playing after that. It's like their seventh guy is probably Brad Wanamaker. They don't really play Cantor anymore. It would only be situationally. They've Cantor's basically been replaced by Robert Williams, the Time Lord, for the like backup, the few backup 
spot center backup minutes. And then I don't know, like Shemi Ojale, Grant Williams, guys who are big bodies, interesting defenders, but can't really shoot either. So it could be a thing where if they're doing what the Raptors kind of did throughout a lot of the Sixer series last year, where just guys who weren't named Kawhi Leonard or Serge Ibaka couldn't hit a shot. So, and that kind of like hurt them. If the Celtics like start missing, like are having just some shooting struggles and like are thinking, okay, we need to find someone else to plug in to jumpstart the offense or help us out a little bit here. They could definitely struggle with that. But like I said, I I just don't think that's going to happen. And I, I do just worry that, the Sixers will go down pretty easily if the Celtics really hit them hard early. It's interesting because we've never seen, obviously, a playoff situation take place in a bubble. Mm-hmm. So our guys just going to be like, hey, we're, we're losing this series. There's no realistic chance of coming back. Let's just go home. And it's not just go home like, hey, we want this road trip to stop. It's like, hey, we want to see our families for the first time in three months. So that's definitely another interesting wrinkle. So not just for the Sixers, obviously, but for, you know, every team as the playoffs get set to uh, begin here in a few days. So, I mean, I mean, you guys have it there, basically. I mean, we're I think we're. Most, at least most of the writers at Liberty Ballers and a lot of Sixers fans we run with probably thinking that it is the Celtics series to lose. But there's definitely, as it's the reason why the Sixers got so much uh, hype throughout like the preseason, why like national writers like can't quit like to the thought of maybe the Sixers can do it. Cause it's just when you have guy, a guy like Joel Embiid as frustrating as everything is and as, little as this team has proven to us on a tangible level, there's just there's a reason more people are excited about the Sixers than the Pacers, even though the Pacers have played better than the Sixers all season. It's There's a guy on the Sixers who could t- be the best player in each playoff series they play if he plays up to his potential, which is probably something only like five or six teams can say. Yep, that's right. And for... Many years now, we've said trust the process. And if we are uh, have any hope that the Sixers are going to advance to the second round, we're going to have to trust the guy who calls himself the process. And it's going to have to be him that puts the team on his back and takes them the next uh, next round here. We will have to trust him indeed, Sean. And I will see you next week when the Sixers are likely down 2-0 and Shake Milton has just gotten into a screening match with Josh Richardson and Al Horford got whistled for a push off on that exact same out of bounds play in game two that would have won the game for the Sixers. But that let's, let's hope that's not the case, but I fear that it will be. It's just family stuff anyway. It's family stuff. Don't even worry about it. All right. See you, Sean. All right. Talk to you next week, Daniel. (laughs) 